folks welcome back to another episode of talking pace the restorative conversations podcast from northern ireland alternatives you're joining us on our second release in restorative justice week and we have an absolute cracker here for you um, to listen to i am joined today on the podcast by mark finnis and mark is an independent thinking associate and he's also one of the uk's leading exponents of restorative practice he has lots of years of experience in terms of working with schools local government agencies and social services and is in pretty big demand in regards to a speaker and a trainer and uh, helping organizations adopt restorative practices in a way that is practical and achievable and it never loses sight of the the children and the young people that uh, those agencies are aiming to serve so it's absolutely fantastic to have them on the episode today so sit back relax and enjoy the conversation with mark so uh, folks welcome to another episode of talking piece the podcast for northern ireland alternatives and today we are joined by mark finnis who is the director of l30 relational systems mark you are very welcome with us on the podcast today mate good to see you lovely to be here thank you for having me lovely lovely to be here yeah, definitely, and uh, great to be able to, to, to feature you on the on, on the podcast and to share some of your insights in regards to restorative practice. Mark, it might be a good place for us just to start with a basic introduction, you know, just who you are, what you do. Um, maybe not everybody here who listens to our podcast may be aware of the work you're doing, so that might be a good foundation for us. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much you want me to go back, but, um, you know, in terms of a background, really, I've been working with children and families, communities for about the last 20, 25 years. So it makes you feel really old when you say that, doesn't it, in those talented digits? Um, it is a Scouse accent for your listeners from Liverpool. But um, I, I really got a background in youth work, youth and community work, youth justice, education. And first got trained in restorative justice in about 1998, I think it was, without putting a specific date on it. And I love restorative justice, but after a few years, I got really frustrated, Glenn, that why did we wait for things to go wrong? Mm-hmm. So I started to get really interested in the proactive nature of what would happen if we got involved earlier in the life of a problem or earlier in the journey of working with children and young people, families, communities. And just to finish a little bit of an introduction, I then got really interested in whole system approach using restorative practice, relationship-based working and um, was lucky enough to get offered a job in 2006 to move to Hull, right. uh, Hull in East Yorkshire. Hull had an ambition, Glenn, to become a restorative city, whatever that means, by the way. But the ambition was to train thousands of people to work in this way across the city. We got a lot of stuff right. And if you've got listeners, you can Google Hull Restorative City. You'll get loads of info. But after that, then, the Director of Children's Services, a wonderful um, gentleman called Nigel Richardson, then left to become the Director of Children's Services in Leeds. And he changed the ambition from a restorative city to a child-friendly city. Mm-hmm. The belief that if you get it right for children, you can change a city in a generation. And restorative practice was at the core. And um, I spent about five years working there for Nigel Richardson, but my organisation also has worked with numerous places all around the country and internationally helping develop this thing that you and I would call restorative practice, really. Great. And I think what we'll do is we'll probably end up delving into some of this a wee bit deeper, Mark, in regards to, you know, you said about where you got your start. And I suppose that's maybe where I would maybe like to, to jump off uh, or start from is in regards to how did you end up getting involved in the whole field of restorative justice? You know, what was it that sparked the interest? Where did that come from? I mean, you might not expect this answer, but I, I got made to go on the course. <laughs> okay. I know that, so much like, for the voluntary participation. <laughs> oh, no. You know, you, I, I was dragged into the room kicking and screaming. You know, it wasn't quite that bad. But, you know, it, we're going back a while where restorative justice was new in this country. Mm-hmm. And um, it was part of the Youth Justice Board initiative that was um, really started through Terry O'Connell, in, you know, colleagues might know in Australia, you know, you know, one of the first people I think that was starting to develop it in terms of his role in the police. And it came through to Thames Valley Police and then it came through the Youth Justice Board. And um, and when I say I didn't want to go on the train and I didn't really know what it was, Mm -hmm. 
But I was a youth worker then, youth and community working in the communities, and I was pushed forward as a, a pivotal role around antisocial behaviour orders were in place at that time and conflict in our communities in Liverpool. And um, went on the course and just absolutely lapped it up. You know, mm-hmm. the trainers were great. But more importantly, lots of things clicked in that when we get closest to the things that matter, that's when things sometimes get the most difficult. And I got trained in a script and model then. But, you know, we, we talk much more around, you know, a dialogue-based model with a structure rather than a script. Uh, and that was really when I got into facilitating restorative conferences, as we know again, and maybe your listeners do, around, um, and I had a full-time job facilitating processes, restorative justice coordinator, it was called. Mm-hmm. And I would just spend time developing it. And that's the bit where I really got interested in this whole notion of how do we manage conflict and tensions in a real way that repairs harm and repairs relationship, but also prevents a reoccurrence. What was it about the training that really grabbed you though? You know, you said that it really kind of clicked for you. Was there something specific in that that really made it head home? Yeah, I suppose I'd always struggled with the notion of professional or service led rather than people or community led. And what I grasped really quickly that it was about sharing power. It was re, it was bringing people closer rather than pushing people out. And I got really frustrated with systems that were looking at what rules being broken, who's to blame, what punishment fits the rule breaking, rather than what's happened, what's the impact on people, and what needs to happen next to move things forwards and all the other bits that we know. And it was more about. I suppose my whole philosophy as a youth worker and community worker was about communities know best. And at times they might need our support or our challenge around various things. And I lived on the communities I used to work. So I was also part of the community, but it was much more, I don't know whether it was a different way, but it just felt like a right way to me rather than a different way. Okay. And what was, you say, the, the impact of that on your, your youth work practice? You know, when obviously you, you moved into your role of facilitating this, but how did... The, the, the concept of restorative justice start changing your practice as a youth worker? To, to be honest with you, I don't know it changed anything. I think what it did is moved implicit to become a little more explicit, moved the unconscious to become a little more conscious. And okay. that's where, I know you're asking me a question around restorative justice, but it's where I got really interested in. Restorative justice for me was a very specific model skill practice and I became much more interested in the youth wave values for me. We're all about the building and maintaining our relationships, mm-hmm. the importance of connecting with people and creating belonging and community. And that's where I got much more interested in the proactive side that I would call, and you probably would, um, Glenn, around restorative practice. But I think people confuse the two. Yeah. I think you're right. I think there's at times where sometimes when people are talking about this, they, they, you know, use those terms almost like they're the same thing, you know, and, and then it becomes kind of long-winded at times, you know, it's restorative justice practices and, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just, uh, yeah, I think when you're dealing with the issues of crime and stuff, you know, it's very much, it's restorative justice, but if it's in any other field, it's the restorative practice thing for me, you know, so definitely. So talk to me about the, your experience and that role. You were saying you moved into the full-time role of facilitating um, restorative processes. Um, what was that like for you? I mean, what were some of the challenges that you faced and how did it pan out? I think some of the challenges at first was on the train. I did a four-day course to start with and then we did a five-day course with another organisation and lots of other little bits like sensitive and complex cases and various parts. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the, the importance that most practitioners realise is the importance of preparation. But, but back in the system, the system for me is far too reactive rather than responsive. So we would have pressure from the system saying there's a time scale of five days, 10 days, whatever it was. And um, as we know, for good quality restorative conferences, bringing people together, it's all about preparation, preparation, preparation. I think one of the challenge was, was senior leaders, managers, people driving the system, not having a really good understanding on what best practice looks like and not giving enough time and space for us as facilitators to um, do a really thorough, good job of preparing people as well as facilitating the meeting and then obviously the follow-up support as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I th- and that's one of the things that obviously we'll get to in regards to the stuff in your book as well, you know, that idea, the connected thing right up the, the lane from practitioner right through to manager to the, the board or whatever way your organization set up, that it needs to infiltrate every aspect of your, your organization in order for it to, to operate properly. 
is there any kind of standout moments that in terms of you know that period of time that you would say really reinforced you know yes you've had this experience of the training and getting on board with this but was there anything that you kind of went through that you can talk about without breaking any level of confidentiality that really reinforced i'm doing the right thing here there here's a really great example of how this was working i think we have many because I, I i was part of a group um in liverpool and helped set up sefton center for restorative practice and what we started to do was realize that this wasn't about criminal justice or just about police or communities where i was sat we started to then introduce training into residential children's homes into schools Mm-hmm. Uh, across the community and I think the standout moment was that restorative practice as well as some of the more formal restorative justice processes could create a golden thread the glue that could start to bind all uh, organizations and agencies because uh, I think at the time when we got trained it was a very criminal justice focused idea mm-hmm. and what we started to do was introduce it that it would be just as effective so we started to see outcomes and impact improve in our communities around reoffending rates, around victim satisfaction, as we would have called it then, uh, fear of crime. But then we also started to see the indicators in residential children's homes, like less call outs to the police, mm-hmm. same in schools, a reduction in exclusions. And we worked across 21 schools in Sefton mm-hmm. in Liverpool with huge impact on exclusions. But the standout moment then was we were still getting involved when things had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really got interested in um, the little bit that you described before that I suppose is the basis for the book is the importance of the building and maintenance of relationships as well as the focus on repairing them. And that's where I got much more interested in what were the behaviours you would want to see if people were more proactively investing in relationships, social capital, relational capital, cultural capital, and making those investments in a relationship bank so that potentially we could prevent things going wrong. Sure. Uh, talk to me more about that kind of shift then, Mark. You know, you obviously you're, you're kind of, um, you know, you're reflecting on your practice. You're starting to notice that, listen, we need to stop being so reactionary and we need to try and get into this preventative stuff. Talk to me about what that thought process was like for you and how you went through an idea of transitioning and that being the main focus of what you were trying to do and how you, you worked with maybe organizations to implement that. Well, I think if you, I think I don't know about yourself, even Glenn or anybody else, but I think most people recognise and realise that the central delivery model is always relationships. You know, is um, relationships for me the, are the glue that binds us. You know, two phrases I talk a lot about in training and sessions is connect before content yeah. and connect before correct. But what does that really mean? And I also felt as a professional. There was lots of people that brought the human side to work and there was other people who were quite guarded. Now there's a criticism or a positive, but we started to frame it that how do we humanize ourselves, but how do we humanize the people we work with, whether you're a social worker, an educator and so on without naming every agency. So we started to think through is that what does that look like? And that's the bit where we started to think about how do we bring our human side as a youth worker? I naturally drew on my personal and mm-hmm. professional self. So we started to think about three P's, personal, private, and professional. We're not suggesting anyone should talk about their private self, but mm-hmm. I'll happily talk about my love of football, my obsession <laughs> with collecting trainers. And by the way, let's not go there with football. I'm an Everton supporter. But on a serious note, it's this little bit about bringing your human side to work and We often talk about we're not looking to increase the level of relationships by 100%. But what would it look like if you're doing 100 things 1% better? Mm. That could be a hello, good morning on a school gate. It it could be in our communities about how do we create the conditions for relationships to flourish. Mm -hmm. And that was really the shift about how do we start to recognize those behaviors and start to create a framework for people to hang their practice on so then you can do it more on purpose more deliberately more creatively okay and what was the responses like from organizations that you were trying to to do this with i think for most people they could recognize some of the behaviors for other people it seemed like a step change because you could talk through the einstein quote that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results i decided to show a different slide it said tradition just because we've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid Mm, and that is meant to be contentious because 
I worry that traditionally we believe that punitive methods change behavior when the mm. reality is we both know it doesn't. That's right. Yeah. So we started to articulate it around a model that lots of people will know around the high challenge, high support framework. And most people can recognize that working in the with box, high challenge, high support, easy when things are easy. But when the going gets tough, lots of systems default back to doing two or four or even worth retreating to the knock box. So start to introduce the whole idea of relationships, starting to introduce the social discipline window, what we call four ways because you've got four practice domains. Mm-hmm. Started to give people a framework to hang practice on. So when they were defaulting to the two box, what needs to be different to get you back to the with box and without turning our chat, our conversation into a training session. <laughs> that was the bit that started to shift people's thinking to, ah, there's something in this. What this is about is starting to move the invisible to become a little more visible. And for those staff who struggled, it gave us a framework to start to pull their practice into. Yeah, and I suppose the struggles that the staff go through are almost, you know, a microcosm of what, you know, obviously in a school base, you know, what how young people might respond to this as well, you know, and, and I think that that's, that's a good place for, you know, people in maybe sort of places of leadership to, to go through that flux as well, you know, and realize that this, you know, if it's not straightforward for us, then, you know, our expectations should be that it's not going to be straightforward with the young people we're engaging with either. Well, suppose the true test of any organization is how we treat our people who are the most vulnerable. Mm. So, you know, if you're thinking about a school example, just for an example, you know, a system meets the needs of 90% of the students, but potentially fails the 10%, you know, the same as in communities, you know, and, and I often think that relationships are the key driver. Cause I always say to people, I'm just reflecting as I'm thinking here, Glenn, is that paperwork doesn't keep children safe. People do. Mm. Yeah. Interventions don't change lives. People do. But every inter- in every interaction can be an intervention in itself. So, so that's the bit where how do you start to tilt leaders to start to think less about targets, for example? Because mm. there's a powerful Einstein quote that I'll throw in and I give your listeners a little bit of a chance to reflect a little bit as well as the two of us. But there's a great Einstein quote that says, not everything we count counts. Mm. And not everything that counts can be easily counted. And the tough bit is, how do you measure relationships? Mm. How, do you men- how do you measure the 10, 11 hours, Glenn, you've built up trust in a community? Well, what you can measure is the number of people who attend a meeting mm. or the frequency. So that little quote, I often worry that we hit the target but miss the point to our work. And yeah. that's the bit about how the leaders start to turn the system to be relational organisations. Yeah. And that comes back to what we were talking a wee bit before there, you know, about you know everybody heading in the same direction and stuff. Because it reminds me of a of a an exercise that used to be done in a, a management training thing I was involved in, and everybody was handed a ball, and they were said, right, hit the target, and obviously the balls went all over the room, and I was like, kind of going, well, if you don't know where you're throwing at, then we can't all hit the same target together, you know. So, yeah. Definitely good stuff. And I think I love that quote as well. I think that's an absolutely, it's another brilliant quote. Not that Einstein doesn't have too many of them, like, but uh, <laughs> it is a great quote. It's definitely one to, to sit back and, and reflect on in terms of what we do. Because we are sometimes, you know, especially in a school base, can be driven by, the, you know, the, the nature of having to hit some targets. And especially if the school hasn't been performing well or they've, they've got some issues in regards to that, then, you know, education board or authorities can be very much, listening. you need to sort this out. And, uh, you know, and there can be some pressure on that. And I think one of the things that I, I remember picking up from talking with um, Jim from the Restorative Justice Council was that was one of his issues in regards to he was a head teacher at a school and he came in at a very low point where they were very much, you know, the, the, they needed to make some serious change. And uh, the change that he implemented was obviously a restorative approach. And, uh, you know, obviously that had a, it was a long-term strategy. But there was a bit of conflict there in regards to the length of time that it was taking them to get to where the, the report said they needed they needed to be, you know, and that can sometimes be a conflict. And that some sometimes maybe puts pressure on an organization or a, a, a group into maybe change the approach and lose a bit of faith. And did you experience that at any time? You know, with the, you were talking about that. There is that kind of, you know, paradox, you know, between hitting the target and that. Was there periods when you were working with people where people started to go, ah, 
maybe we should just go and do what we're being asked. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate challenge, isn't it? Because, you know, even if we're going back to the framework you know, we talked about before, doing things with people rather than two or four, let's be honest, Glenn, it's really easy and quick to do things to people or for mm. people. You know, I'm, I'm a dad of five children. It's really easy to just tell them to do something or it's mm-hmm. really easy just to do it for them. The, the problem with that is people don't learn to do things for themselves. So as if you talk about schools context, if adults are managing children's behaviour, they never learn to manage it themselves. If we don't teach children how to interact and manage conflict in a different way, then maybe they don't. So it, it, it does take more time. But I always say to people, it's time well invested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Time banked. You invest a little more time now, maybe you save time forwards. But as you said with the colleague you mentioned before, it takes courage to stay to your vision. You know, and yeah. people want quick wins these days, don't they? Yeah, and I think there's some element where quick wins are useful. I think whenever you are trying to implement something and people can see, yes, this is taken, you know, it's taken root and you get some quick wins in regards to that. But I think in terms of the long-term change that you really need to, to see in regards to relationships, that's the bit that really takes the time. And there, there is no quick, I don't think there is a quick win in regards to relationships because it, it is a constant process, a constant piece of reflection around how's this going? Where does this take us? How do we make this better? You know, wh- what's the next step from this? Because there's, you never arrive anywhere in terms of a relationship. It's always, there's always somewhere else to go, isn't there? Well, we always say to people, relationships aren't a one-off event. You know, relationships aren't built in a day, they're built daily. Where some people think, oh, I'll make a load of deposits in the relationship bank and that'll mm-hmm. keep going. The reality is it doesn't. You end up depleting it down and before long you're running on empty. It's where we talk about relational capital. It's a little yeah. bit like financial capital. If you stop putting money in your bank account before long, you're running on debt. Yeah. And I think we don't often think about relationships in the same way. So that's where we really get people to think about the building, the maintenance and the repair room. Yeah, And you can't put more emphasis on one or the other. But for me, I'd much rather spend much more time on the proactive side of things, the building and maintenance, and get involved earlier in the life of a problem. So then you deal with a really low-level conflict rather than have to do a whole bunch of preparation over weeks that might be involved um, to repair that conflict. What would happen if we really started to get involved earlier? Yeah, no, and, and it's funny you mentioned that there, in terms of the, the social capital and the, the, the I was, I, I do some offline supervision for some youth workers and today I had a session with a, with a youth worker and that was what we were focusing in on was this whole idea of the, the, the social capital thing. You know, if you're, yes, you know, all behavior is unmet need, but if they're, con- if you're just constantly take, take, take. And there's nothing being left in sooner, you know, there's a def there is that deficit there. And that we need to realize that there needs to be a given back. And how do we facilitate that process? You know, and that I know they walked away from that with a you know a, a list of things that they wanted to try and do because you have to be proactive about this. You know, at the end of the day, you have to have a plan for it, don't you? I mean, you don't plan to have a terrible relationship. I mean, you don't get involved in relationships with people with the plan for it to be terrible, but do we have a plan for it to be the best? You know, what is your plan to make this relationship the best that it possibly can be? And I think that goes into all aspects of, uh, and I suppose that's where restorative practice for me really comes into its own in regards to any organization. So what can you do? What is the plan to make our relationships with each other as staff the best that they can be, but also with our client base, whatever that looks like? How do we make those relationships the best that they can, can possibly be? And that's the key bit, isn't it? You know, you mentioned before about leaders. I think some of it is about inverting the leadership triangle instead of leadership sitting at the top of the triangle. Mm. We really need leaders to create the conditions for people to be able to invest in relationships. Yeah, you know, that's it. That, you know, that's where people talk about the honeymoon period of a relationship without mm-hmm. turning this into a counselling session or a you know <laughs> marriage guidance. But, you know, I, you know, I'm a married man and, you know, I often think I hear people say, oh, the, the, you know, the honeymoon period was the best. That's when people make the most effort. Mm. You know, I, I, I think it's the same in relationships. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a leader of my own organization. I work with others. All relationships need tending to. So when I was a team manager, we would meet on a Monday morning for a check in circle. Mm-hmm. People miss the point. It's not the way you rearrange the furniture. It's the way you share the conversation and the way you share the power. 
But that little 15 minutes on a Monday morning where we would all share something from the weekend, the personal, then we'd check in professionally. It set us up for the week ahead. Mm. That doesn't mean you and I haven't got a love of football, so we spend 15 minutes in the kitchen making a brew, chatting about Everton or whichever team somebody else support. That doesn't mean that somebody else's child's not being well and I just check in with them. Mm. But what we're going to create is those anchor points where we prioritise investing in the relationship bank with each other. And then we used to do a checkout on a Friday afternoon, processing the week. When I worked in schools, a lot of the schools we work with, you know, Carmanna Community School in Leeds is one. They they do check-in, check-up, check-out in the week, Monday right. morning, Wednesday afternoon, and Friday morning, three times, 20 minutes a week. They do nothing but invest in relationships with students. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a little bit about social capital, relational capital. We can invest in it. I mean, you and I have met before today, haven't we? We, are, we, yeah. uh, we chatted about various things. The more investment you make, the more trust you build. The more trust you build, the easier it is to have those more sensitive, complex conversations yeah. and still maintain a relationship afterwards. Definitely. And I think that that's whenever I mean, I've been talking with a lot of people about, you know, the idea of, the building of relationships, if you put the time and the effort into that, the repair and the harm, it's not that the repair and the harm becomes easier because dealing with harm is always, always difficult. But it, the process of getting to the point where both parties will want to deal with yeah. that is built in the relationship, isn't it? Yeah. And it goes back to, you know, the small stuff is, in fact, the big stuff. Most people don't want the world. You know, when we talk about on training about the importance of relationships, I'm sure people think that's a huge bit. It might just be agreeing to say hello when you come in the office. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it might just be when people come into your, you know, I've worked in, um, you know, family and community centres where people come in, you do this really weird thing, Glenn, you smile at people, you know, and that might be a flipping. But I've worked with some people where I've questioned if they even like children. Right. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, you know, and maybe you think this is going down a different turn, but, you know, for me, I don't need to go on a training course to say hello to people. My mum used to say that was good yeah. manners, but I've worked in some organisations where some people don't even say hello or goodbye when they come in a room. Mm-hmm. Families arrive or communities arrive into a space and we don't acknowledge them arriving. So it's the bit where what we want to do is just start to name some of the things you want to see in an organisation. Mm-hmm. And that's the bit where we've both, both been talking about those investments. Small ripples create big waves, I think. And yeah. never underestimate the power of the small stuff. No, definitely. And I, I, I love that because it, it, it doesn't, what it does is it puts it in everybody's grasp. It puts it in a place where you can get this. And it's not some, when people hear some of the, the things that come around, you know, when you think of some of the, you know, the, the jargon that's used maybe around, you know, restorative justice, restorative practice. If you're on the outside looking in on that and haven't really encountered that, it almost puts it out of your grasp. But what we were talking about, it, I love the language that you use, and especially throughout the book and even just through what we've been talking about already. It puts it in the grasp of everybody and saying, listen, this is something we all can do this kind of stuff you can do regardless of whether you're introvert extrovert whatever it happens to be this puts this in the grasp of everybody yeah uh, and, and that's the bit where I'm, I'm always curious it's why some sometimes people say oh your organization's called l30 relational systems why isn't it called restorative i think mm. if we're not careful sometimes you spend five minutes explaining what restorative practice isn't before you then talk about what it is <laughs> yeah well let's say i mean you think about hard zero has a whole part in the little bigger restorative justice that talks about you know what restorative justice is not you know yeah. and i get the premise for that but it almost like it can't be almost um it almost can be like a barrier at times, you know, with this word restorative appears in front of everything. And you're like, okay, well, we'll talk to them about that. And it's going, we're actually, we're here for something else. You know, we're here to talk about this. Um, let's not let this get in the way of what we're, we're really trying to do. And I suppose that's for me, it's always been, how do you break this down in a way that makes it straightforward for people to walk away with it? And it's those those three core things for me, and I know they're reiterated throughout your book and, and a number of things. It's For me, it's that building relationships, maintaining your sense of community so that you can repair harm. And those, if you can get that, you, you can get this, you know what I mean, in, in every shape or form. And, and that's the bit. And I think if we're talking about a restorative conference, for example, or a family group conference, you know, and I'm also a trained family group conference convener, we don't want to water that down by calling it something else. 
Mm -hmm. But I think the core essence of restorative practice, as we both agreed this afternoon, is that it's all about relationships. Well, for most people, they're nothing new. Mm. The core of youth work is the ability to connect and build rapport. The the core of social work is to do the same. If you go into hospitals, the core of nursing is that... So what I'm trying to suggest is we've all got a common language, a common approach with a common ambition. But what we want to start to do is I worry that, back to the Einstein quote, that the system doesn't always count the importance of relationships. It might count me doing an assessment within a time frame. Well, if I'm really busy, I end up doing that assessment really quickly, more like a finance document. Mm -hmm. Whereas if if we measure the quality of my assessment versus me completing my assessment, then I'll I'll get to know the child really well or the family member. Yeah. So that my assessment has the voice of the child throughout. And maybe shifting things a wee bit here. I know this question may not have been on the list here, but Mark, how do you use this approach in family life, or do you? I, I, I do. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's been, to be really honest as well, if I can just be really authentic with you today, it's been quite funny doing training at home because I know the last year with everything that's been happening, I've done a lot of training and my 22-year-old's in the next bedroom there and my um, 18-year-old's in the other bedroom at college, for example. It's quite funny when I come out and they go, you don't do half the things that you talk about. <laughs> in there. Because I think there's two things. Is One is restorative practice is easy to learn but hard to live. Mm. I also think that as we're human beings, human beings, and we react. But what I do is really consciously think about the building and maintenance and repairing of relationships across my family. Yeah. And if you get things wrong, you can make it back. And, you know, people are often surprised that, you know, I, I don't know whether your listeners will be familiar with effective statements, for example, or, you know, obviously the restorative questions, restorative language. Why wouldn't I use that stuff at home? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't I use effective statements to name behaviours that are worrying me or name behaviours that leave me feeling proud as a parent? Why wouldn't I manage conflict between my four daughters by using some of the structures and processes we teach? Why wouldn't we get them to acknowledge there's more than one perspective and what do they need from each other for it to move forward? Mm-hmm. But when I first got trained, it was quite interesting when my children saying, you've been on another restorative practice course, haven't you? <laughs> And I think some of that is, but you hope that that rubs off on people. Yeah. And did you find it was obviously, you know, they were saying, yeah, you've been on another course, but at some point did it it clicked in for them as well, that this actually worked, you know And I mean? Is there a a moment where you, you, it it happened? Cause I know I I did it once with, uh, whenever I did the idea of a, of a, a circle with the family and uh, introduced the whole idea even just of a talking piece and the raised eyebrows and what is what is he on and but then the end result was that we got to be open in a way that we probably hadn't been for for quite some time so did you did you find out with the, the family that there was a point where it became embraced well, I think what, 100%, I mean, you're making me reflect a little bit now. I mean, it's even little things like I, I, I buy a round table where mm. we have our, you know, I was going to be posh then, by the way, and call it dinner, but we call it tea, <laughs> to be honest with you. But where we have tea, and um, two of my children are a little bit like the mum, a little quieter, a little more reserved. The other ones are a bit of a big mouth like me, and I mean that in a kind and loving way. So if you're not careful around the dinner table, for example, Louder voices like me will share the day, will share mm-hmm. what they've succeeded. So the idea of doing a go-round and checking in and, you know, inviting quieter voice in, it, it's become part of what we do. And it's really interesting when friends and family come round and we, we invite people into the space because people often think doing circles and doing go-rounds and check-ins is something new. Mm-hmm. It's what people have been doing for years. It's why yeah. in our house we, we've never eaten tea in front of the table you know, uh, in front of the TV, sorry. It's because it's that moment where as a family, we check in. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean I don't nip in and um, wind my daughter up who's next door when I'm on a break from training or vice versa. It doesn't mean that we don't have dinner together. But you've got to create those touch points where you connect and reconnect. And tea time is the place for us where we mm-hmm. will do a go around. What was your highlight from your day? Something that made you smile? What's going on for you? And how do we bring the quieter voices in? Because the beauty of a circle is it's not the way you rearrange the furniture. It's the way you share the conversation. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that in terms of what it brings to, you know, just 
family life in general, you know, how it change it almost changes a narrative, you know, doesn't it? From and it helps you unlearn some of the stuff, you know, that maybe you've you picked up on your own, you know, childhood and how things were done um in my own house. I know that that's something that I'm very aware of whenever I started delving into things like the social discipline window and realizing that, you know, there was a lot of stuff done to me. You know, there was a lot of, you know, do this, you're being told this is the way something is and uh, or children should be seen and not heard. And, you know, you get into this way of not saying stuff because that's what you've been brought up with. And it's kind of for me is almost without wanting to sound strange and stuff, but it's almost therapeutic in terms of that. It, it gives you the chance to break free from some of those things that have become almost, you know, it's learned behavior that hasn't, it hasn't actually been beneficial in terms of going forward in life and stuff, you know? So um, it, it's definitely well worth pursuing. And one of the things that I love doing with we're not with the training we do here at alternatives is obviously the idea of putting this stuff into practice and then what we we would sort of teach, you know, three core concepts, three core tools. And obviously one of the tools is the use of a circle or effective statements. And obviously the restorative questions are the three kind of core things we're going. But the next session that they come back into the circle is them sharing the experience that they've had of trying to put this in the practice. And it's amazing how time after time they, they come in. I didn't think this would work, but this happened. You know, that's great. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing there is people experience it, isn't it? You know, you, yeah. you know you, you, you're teaching it, you're sharing it, but actually people experiencing it. And, you know, even talking about the question about a home, you know, me personally, I, I authentically believe that punishments and punitive methods just create resentment rather than reflection. Mm. So as a parent, I want to model something different. But what people, what other people often ask me is, so where does punishment fit in and where do consequences fit in? And once you unpick it a little bit, I think the phrase for me is punishment only works some of the time. And what it does is create no intrinsic motivation to do the right thing. I'll do the right thing to prevent something that's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. What we've often talked about, even on the training, but also as a parent, is logical consequences. Mm-hmm. So if my two children, when they were younger, they're older now, but had an argument and spoke disrespectfully to each other, it's not logical for them to now be grounded for the night. It just doesn't stack up for me. What mm-hmm. is logical is how do you understand the impact on each other and what needs to happen next? But you can flip that back into schools and other organisations. If you're my class teacher and I tell you to F off, but I then go on detention with Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, it's not logical. And what it does, if we're not careful, is when I appear back in your classroom and we haven't repaired our relationship, things are never going to go well. You're not going to smile and say, it's really nice to see you again, Mark, when in the last lesson I've embarrassed and shamed you in the front of the whole class. So that's for me where I really wrestle with punishment Mm. because it works for moments in time. You know, if you see people driving a car, you know, when they approach a speed camera, what you most of the time see is brakes go on. Mm-hmm. When they pass the speed camera, they speed back up again. Yeah. The, the worry is it creates compliance without ownership. I'll behave in the right way where I might get caught, but the minute I pass it, I'll go back to what I've always wanted to do. And I think that's what punishments and punitive systems do. They encourage people to not get caught. Yeah. I think, you know, completely. I think you're you're one hundred percent right on that. It's uh, it's definitely a thing, you know, because if we talk about trying to create, I know some of the stuff that we do here is all about, you know, law abiding citizens, you know, and a, and a respect for the law and stuff. You know, some of the programs we do uh, focuses in on that. But it's amazing how many people want to bend the rules, you know, and they want to just find the way to bend the rules so that they can get what they want rather than what the <laughs> the law potentially says that they should be doing and so on. So, yeah, definitely is. And it's about that overall change. It's about reforming that approach and saying, well, listen, there is another way of doing this. There is another way through, and, and this is how, how it works. Um, but it's getting people to, to get that buy-in, isn't it? Well, restorative practice for me, if you're thinking about the two-four-not-with window again, you know, the social discipline window, is I often think the two box people people will pick up really quickly that's authoritarian. Mm. But what they miss is that restorative practice is authoritative. Yeah. You know, you and I all know this, but I always like to remind people that restorative practice is no less of the authority 
It's how you exercise that authority yeah. in a way that does things with people rather than to them or for them. Yeah, it's when the balance with support, isn't it? Yeah. So these are our expectations. These are our boundaries, but we're going to give you the support to achieve them. You know, and I think people miss that punitive systems don't often give people the support to achieve our expectations. Mm. Equally, the risk is we create permissive systems that are overly supportive, lack um, boundaries. They're rescuing, they excuse people's mm. behaviours. So we want the balance of both. We want nature, compassion and empathy. We want kindness, respect and dignity. But we also want some really pretty high expectations, boundaries yeah. and all the rest of the stuff. No, completely. I know that we do some work with young offenders and things like that. And it's, you know, the amount of times that they've been in and out of, you know, custodial sentences. And it's as if that, you know, haven't been in the in jail or whatever, that supposedly when they walk out through the door, that magically, ta-da, you're now okay again. You know, to, to go back into society and act the way society expects you to. And, and yet the root cause of whatever led them to that behavior and to do what they've done, it still hasn't been addressed. It hasn't, they haven't had the support that they need to address what needs to, to change for them to stop doing that particular thing. And that's where the quality of the relationship kicks in. Sometimes high support looks like I'm here for you. Mm. You know, I often think we don't use the word love enough. Mm. And I don't mean how I love my family and friends. And by the way, Glenn, I've got a dog as well. I love my dog quite a lot, to be honest with you. I don't tell anyone, but I love the dog more than my own family. Is that bad? <laughs> but, um, but on a serious note is, uh, you know, I think love's an underused word. Mm. You know, and actually what, what, what we mean by love is nurture, compassion, empathy and kindness, especially in children. There's a great book out there by um, Dr. Andrew Curran. And he talks about seven steps to healthy brain development. Mm. And I think for some of the children I've worked with, you know, love is probably the thing that's missing. They're used to boundaries, you know, they're used to home lives that might be X, Y, and Z. For some of them, what that unmet need is, you talked about before, is an adult who's irrationally obsessed with them being successful, mm -hmm. who understands the power of connection and insists they will be the best they can be. And that's the bit where relationships comes back for me is that how do we develop those really high trust and relationships with our children, young people, that we don't shy away from the boundaries, but when they are released, what support do we put in? And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, maybe circles of support and accountability. We don't want to, we don't want to lower our expectations, but we've got to support people to achieve it. And that might be about that nurture, compassion and empathy. Yeah, no, definitely. Mark, talk to me a bit about where L30 then comes into your life. You know, obviously you'd spent time as a youth worker. You moved into doing the restorative justice stuff. Where does L30 come in? So L30, you know, even if people think of why L30, I live in Yorkshire now, I have for, since 2005. L30 is the postcode in Liverpool where I started working um, as a youth worker. So it's as simple as that. But wh where it came in is, I, so I never planned on having my own business, training company, whatever word you want to attach to it. But um, we started doing a lot of um, work on my old name was my finished training and consultancy. You know, when you go and visit the accounts and they say, what do you want to be called? And you go, I haven't got a clue. But so, but as it grew, we sort of collected people. And I mean that with the utmost respect, you know, there's, um, there's seven of us um, in L30 and um, brilliant people who just are rationally obsessed with restorative practice, relationships, working in the wind box. And we just sort of grow. And so then you start to think about collectively, what do we stand for? And that's the bit where we moved it away from my name to become much more about L30, relational systems. Mm -hmm. And the reason we talk about relational is what we've been describing. But the other bit is the system. We do a lot of work on system redesign. So policies, procedures, you know, mm -hmm. uh, assessment processes, meeting structures. So we also do the systemic work as well as the behavior, you know, work that you'd want to see. And what we do is we work with lots of children's services at the moment. We're currently working with about eight on big system pieces of work. And then we do lots of work with schools and organizations um, as a group and as a team. Cool. And obviously you spend a lot of time working in schools and other organizations in terms of helping them making that transition to become, you know, uh, more restorative in their, in their approach. Um, what's, what's the, weirdest requests you've had from a group and that you maybe were surprised that you've been asked to come in and work with? Whoa. The weirdest request. See, my mind's gone off in many tangents there. <laughs> but, uh, but in terms of that, 
I don't know whether we've had weird requests. I think, um, do you know what? I'm struggling for an answer when you say a weird request. I I think sometimes uh, people don't always know what they're getting themselves in for. So sometimes they think, oh, yeah, we want to do restorative practice work. But when you get in, you know, people often say it's easy to learn but hard to live. So some Mm. of the weirdest requests uh, maybe not weird, but, you know, people often think the ideas are really simple to learn. But when you drop them into an organization, what does a relational organization look like? So mm-hmm. I'm not sure we, sure we get the weird requests, but some of the requests are about modeling it. Okay. And you assume really experienced staff and senior leaders will be really consciously competent in this stuff. And some of the requests we get is, to, is around the coaching and support to really start to build up skills. Because we talk a lot about competency breeds confidence. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the requests you get is really experienced people sometimes metaphorically want the hand held. And sometimes that surprises us thinking that let's never forget the simplicity of restorative practice, but the complexity within it. Yeah. How have you handled the whole pandemic thing? Obviously, you know, with a name like L30 Relational Systems and uh, moving into maybe doing a lot of online stuff. How has that impacted the work that you've done um, over the last year to 15 months? The first thing is I wear a lot of elasticated trousers now. I don't know about <laughs> you, Claire. You know, I had a face-to-face date last week in Bristol and none of my clothes fitted me. I suddenly realised that elasticated shorts and trousers had uh, moved me to a whole different place. It's also become socially acceptable to eat six packets of pickled onion monster munch before nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but um, on a serious note, is uh, we, we really struggled at first, if I'm being really honest. The whole notion of doing restorative and relationship based training, and you know, you're, you deliver training yourself and facilitate. We do a lot of games and a lot of mixes mm. and a lot of so moving on to online, you know, even just sitting in this chair, you know, I'm a mover, you know, when mm. I'm on a training room. We like to, the environment is a physical one, so you can do a lot of that stuff. But what we have found, though, is that the level of engagement is really high as people adjusted. Because, you know, we're currently writing 10 10 steps, 10 benefits of online training as we go back to potentially whatever normal looks like. Because I think even though I can't wait to get back in the training room where you can put tea and coffee on, you can put the biscuits out in the morning, you can set the furniture up in a certain way, I still think there's a place for online because Mm. I think what we've realised is in some of the big counties we work in, like Staffordshire, for example, some people can travel an hour for an hour session with us. Mm -hmm. There's actually been able to check in online. People with additional needs say it's really great that, you know, really poor quality projectors and screens. Now you have it the size of your own screen at home. It's really easy to see it. You can have a comfy chair. You can get your own drink. So a lot of the venues we train at, some of them are great. Mm. I mean, I don't know about yourself, whether you have venues you use a lot, but because we travel all around the country, some of them are fit for purpose. Mm. You know, really small or, you know, the, the ceiling's caving in or whatever. So... I think we've adapted to deliver sessions very differently. And obviously Zoom's a great platform for breakout spaces and, you know, paired work and group work, but there's nothing like face-to-face, is there? No, no. And it, it, for me, it just, it is that, that relational thing, you know, and trying to read body language and stuff when you only can see from either mid-waist up or whatever else is often yeah. difficult and it's easy to kind of hide away. And I actually, I actually find at times, while I've made use of the, the Zoom and, and other platforms as well, I actually find it, it actually more exhausting than than being in a, in a room with physically with people, you know, trying to, to work out what's going on with someone and, and trying to, you know, your eyes are all over the place, you know, trying to, you know, keep a, yeah. keep a track of what people are doing and things, you know, I, I just find it a wee bit more draining off that. And I, and I find it after a session that I'm kind of like, I need to take a wee bit of time just out of here, you know, because, you know, everything's kind of, a bit different my eyes are sore which i'm not used to do. you know that there's other there's wee physical things that come with that that i've i've never had to really deal with before and also you lose the water cooler conversation don't you you lose mm. people sitting together to break lunch times yeah. you miss you you miss the stuff that you can't always see that's happening but you can feel that's happening in the space yeah. i think the risk is with online is the minute you put a slide up and everybody disappears off the screen mm. In real life, so to speak, um, you know, pe- people still see the slides behind you 
and then yeah. you're present with the group. You can do group exercises and wander around. And yeah, yeah it, it's um, certainly a lot more taxing for people being online, you know, mentally, yeah. mentally and physically. Yeah, it forced me into looking for new ways of doing things, you know, and and, and utilized. I don't know why you come across Prezi video, but I, I use that regularly. The, the fact that the stuff just appears on the screen with me rather than being a slate as such, you know, and everybody disappearing. You can keep that conversational aspect going. And I know Zoom have now started to introduce that with their advanced sharing options where your slides are in the background and you're still in the forefront and things, you know, which is great, you know, in terms of trying to keep that conversational thing going on in. What I've also found is I use, I don't want to use the Circles platform, not the Circles plugin for Zoom, but there's a platform called Circles. Yeah. It's like a web-based thing called it C-I-R-C-L.es. And yeah. it puts everybody in a circle on the screen. Everybody's in the same format. You know, so no matter what screen you look at, everybody's in the same order. And uh, it's got some really great functions. Well, worth we use that for just general introductions or having the idea of an online circle where we're just trying to focus in on something. Really, really good. Well worth, well worth looking up. I'm pretty secure. There's some things that it doesn't do well. You know, it doesn't do sharing of the screen well. It doesn't do, um, you know, sort of presentation ways, things or video stuff well. But if you're just using it for a conversational thing, which is obviously the main point of the circle is the conversational aspect of it. It's yeah. really, really effective. And uh, yeah, check it out. I will do. I mean, I, I literally have never heard of that. I think the bit that just listening to you speak and share your experiences, is, I think we were quite lucky that we're not a, a PowerPoint heavy organization mm -hmm. and we'll use slides for pictures. We'll, we'll use a quote. So you can very quickly interchange that. But people still need a visual, don't they? They need an anchor. Yeah. They need a point to draw them in. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'm not a big advocate of the, the, the slide approach either. You know, for me, if the, the PowerPoint or the keynote, you know, is more than 20 slides, then it's for me, that's just too much. Um, but, you know, but it's just... For me, they're always they're like anything. They're 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 um they're stimulators. There's something there just to kind of either either keep something at the forefront for people. If it's a question that we're looking them to expand, that that's what's on the screen and nothing nothing yeah. else. You know, just use it as a frame of reference so that you can kind of. I suppose that comes back to my whole idea of learning being about experience and resources. You know, so what experience can we recruit and what you know resources can we provide that allows that learning experience to you know the the the, the percolate, I suppose, you know, and uh, and let, you know, you get on with what it is that you, you need to get on with. Well, it's the best, I suppose, when we first started training online, we, we thought we had to do most things still, whereas when you're in a training room, you would use group work, you'd use paired work, you'd sit in a circle. I suppose it took us, if I'm being really honest, a little bit of time to get back to what we did well, because, we, you know, a bunch of people turn up on your screen and they're looking at you saying, what are you going to do now? Yeah, but you know, so it, it takes a bit of time, I think, to adjust to online learning and do some of the creative ways you've been describing. Yeah, but some we, of the plus points are people have said, you know, it's much easier to make notes. Well, that's just it, isn't it? You know, or even to be able to ask a question without having to interrupt. You know, yeah. which is great. You know, being able to use the, the you know the chat feature to put something in, it, it it gives that. You know, we talk a lot about you know giving the quieter voices the room to speak, and in some senses, you know, the chat function is great for that. Um, in terms of just bringing stuff out, or they make a comment that they maybe don't feel confident enough to share, um, verbally and stuff. You know, so there are it, we we'd be. We'd be at, a, at our own kind of detriment to kind of say, well, listen, we've had to make do with it. But it, it's realizing that it actually has, to some degree, has enriched our experiences as well. You know, and I think what we're looking at now, as you're suggesting, is it's a hybrid yeah. we're looking at. You know, there's some, what way can we use it? Where can we, you know, make a compliment what we do face to face? And I would, I, I'm like, I'd like to do some one to one stuff based on, on Zoom, you know, and just sort of listen, let's, connect instead of you having to travel let's let's try and do this and uh you know i i, I find it useful and then we've used a platform called thinkific as well in terms of using just online content so a lot of our video based stuff or whatever is on there but people can actually go and do one of our training courses where they even come on to us they can just go on do it there and then we connect with them um as they go through the the process themselves and stuff you know and we're we're trying to utilize that in in different ways and so well, let's make it fit what we need and yeah. you know work work from there um mark obviously you've you've written a book 
you know, and uh, obviously um, it's sitting right in front of me as well. And there, we've already kind of hit some of the, the gems that are in that. Was a book always on the agenda for you or where did that come from? The book definitely wasn't always on the agenda. Um, if I'm honest with you, I'm not a natural writer and not a disciplined writer, not something that comes natural. Um, to say I enjoyed writing the book would be a lie. Okay. Um, you know, and if my wife was sat behind me, she'd be going, he was a nightmare. What I mean by that was, it's, I think it takes great discipline. But the reason I wanted to write it was, I wanted a book that was like a conversation. Mm-hmm. I didn't want a book that was heavy on theory or heavy on academic. There's some great books out there that do it. And I love academia and I love research and I love evidence-based work. But I wanted to write a book that would act like a, you could pick it up and read it with a piece of cake. You could get a beer, a glass of wine, a coffee. You could dip into it after a busy day. So there is little splatterings of humour in there. There's some bits and bobs. But I wanted a really practical, so I wrote it into six stages, really, um, that would mirror some of our training, that would give a different lens to the word relational stuff. Um, and um, yeah, I feel really proud of it to be honest with it. A lot of great feedback from it, which, if again, if I'm being a little vulnerable, was not a panic. But when you're writing, you put yourself um, out there, you start to share a little bit of yourself, and you think, what's going to come back? So, it's been yeah, quite- no, definitely, I, it, it is one of those things. I know I, I didn't, I, I obviously, I published a book as well during um, during lockdown, not a, a a manual in regards to restorative justice, but I wrote part of my life story and uh, um, put it out. And uh, it was that kind of that fear and trepidation of what are people going to, you know, um, think of this and <laughs> um, are they even going to be interested, to be honest with you. But yeah. one of the things that I do like about the way that the, the book is written is I feel like I'm there with you. I feel like I'm almost in. It's almost like I'm in the room. And in the end, whenever I went back to after we had an initial conversation, and uh, it actually helped me out because whenever I was reading the book, I almost heard you saying it. It was like I was, I was. It sounded like the conversation that we had had. And so, if that was your your aim, I definitely think you, you you've done that. What, what kind of you said that there's been positive responses? What kind of responses have you been getting? What you know has been the feedback that you're you're getting about the book? I mean. It's- the feedback is the obvious stuff. You know, it went out to people to do reviews, you know, peer reviews, and obviously some of that feedback. You know, one quote that stuck with me was from a head teacher in um, in Stockton, you know, northeast of England. She, and she said it's like chicken soup for the soul. Right. You know, and it, it said it sort of fed it. Other people have said it challenged them in a positive way to think differently. I mean, some of the feedback we've had is some organisations, schools and organisations have bought a copy for each member of staff. Wow. I mean, the government of Jersey ordered 300 copies and it was a bit, they seen it as a really easy way for people to access restorative practice, not to replace mm. training, but to go alongside it. And some of the schools have done the same. So people have really bought into it in terms of, uh, and what people have been doing with the book, you know, around the six chapters is using it as peer stuff. So they read a bit and then they reflect, they apply a bit, they pick mm-hmm. out three things they're going to take from it. So people, the, some of the feedback's been, you know, the philosophical stuff about turning the system slightly different. Some of it, they like the practical stuff. Uh, and other people have gone wholeheartedly, as in, you know, huge investment in time, as well as obviously investing the, the, um, the money into the book just to start to... So if I'm being honest with you, I've been absolutely overwhelmed. Yeah, what were your hopes for it when you wrote it? What were you, what was your expectation? Um I think the hope was it would add another voice into the mix. You know, I, I've always believed in there is another way. You know, I'm part of an organization called the Independent Thinking Limited. And um, we wrote, you know, collectively we wrote a book about four or five years ago called There Is Another Way. Mm-hmm. And um I think if we're not careful, we get stuck in systems built on the old. And I was hoping that it would be a really practical way for people who already know restorative practice to get something from it, but also to appeal to people that had a certain belief of what restorative practice was, that it would introduce potentially another way to improve outcomes for children, families and communities. And that was the ultimate hope, really. Yeah, and I think it's good to have stuff that even from, you know, from England and the UK that's locally based, you know, because there is a lot of the writing that's maybe outside of our own, you know, framework. You know, and then you're having to try and apply that culturally, I suppose, you know, in terms of how that, you know, how does this translate, you know, and in terms of, you know, obviously there's, 
uh, attitudes and things towards things like policing and all sorts of stuff that come out in these books that you know that are very related to maybe what's happening in the states or somewhere else and you're then having to decipher things and yeah. i think it's great to have something that is culturally based in terms of the the uk and i know that's one of the things you, you talk a lot about culture you know the culture of the organization and stuff in the, in the book as well you know and I, and I think that that's that's really important and, I, and it's definitely you know i i've loved reading it i'm on my third pass of it now so i'm you know gleaning you. stuff from it as much as i can thank you very much I, I mean the bit you just said the word culture it's certainly something that's interested me for years you know, and I keep talking about I'm going to go back and do a master's in either organisational culture or some of that work around value-based work, not necessarily just the word restorative. But, you know, a framing in the book is around culture exists in every organisation, but is it by design or is it by default? Mm-hmm. I think the worry of an organisation, or even if we go back to a conversation about family, is I don't want practice by default. Mm-hmm. I want practice by design. So what does that look like? And you know, culture, people say to me often, you know, oh, these are our organizational values, but they're on the wall mm. or laminated on a lanyard. You know, they're not your values. And if they are, what do we really believe? What are our attitudes? What are our practice? What are our skills and behaviors? Because yeah. I always think if you have to read uh, someone's website or read uh, their organizational values, they're probably not living it. You yeah. should be able to go into an organization and pick up very quickly what are yeah. their two or three really core values. And, I think that's what restorative practice gives lots of people a very explicit framework to hang that practice on. So you can do either practice or culture by design rather than yeah. by default. I think I think you're right there. In terms of you can walk into some places and the vibe lets you know what the 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 culture of the place is like, well, regardless of whether they have, you know, a, a credo or a, whatever it is you want to call it these days, you know, um, in terms of vision statements and all those kind of things that the, the people used to spend loads of money on developing and not living out you know so um you're right there i know i I work for a pretty uh well-known organization or company quite some years ago nda means i can't talk about it and uh but there was very much a a lane of here's the values and the values was a card um that you had to carry around with you and you're like kind of going well if i have to carry the card around with me to remind me of what the values are then there's maybe maybe there's something wrong here um, but yeah, no, completely read that. One of the things that I want to ask you about, your book is full of wee nuggets of, you know, like phrases and, you know, takeaway, you know, lines that, you know, people can really, you know, use to assimilate the learning that's there. And I think that that's great. I love the way you've put a lot of those at the back of the book, almost like as a wee resource of, you know, here's some key points for you to remember. I've, have you any favorites? So you've already mentioned a couple. One was the the connection before content. And I know I think I'd mentioned one was about, you know, model what you're teaching. If you don't model what you're teaching, then you're maybe not teaching what you think you're supposed to be teaching. Yeah. That's obviously my paraphrase of that one. But have you got a couple of, of favorites of that, that that really stand out for you from a personal point of view? I think it's the one you've said. You know, the mantra for me is always being connect before content or connect before correct. I think the other one that resonated really is the marginal gains. If anyone listening into sports or business, you'll recognize marginal gains from Sir Dave Brailsford or Sir Clive Woodward, two books I've read, is the not doing things 100% better, but 100 things 1% better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think quite often, if you think about the big stuff, it becomes overwhelming. And there's no evidence to suggest that huge, big steps work in an organization. It's the small ripples that create big waves. So I think they're the two that probably are the closest for me is that little bit around, you know, don't do things 100% better, but do 100 things 1%. And for me, the cornerstone of restorative practice or relationship-based working is always the importance of building connection with people um, before you get into any of the content. Oh. If people want to get in touch with you, Mark, or they want to get a hold of your book or employ L30 for your services, how do they do it? Um, we've, got a, we've got a website, l30relationalsystems.co.uk. Um, you'll find out a whole bunch of information on there. You'll also find information on the book on there. You can get the book on Amazon. If, you're not, if you don't buy from Amazon, you can also get it from Waterstones, W8 Smith. Um, the publishing house that um, have published the book is Independent Thinking Limited, and you can get that on Crown House Publishing through Independent Thinking on there as well. Um, and if people were listening in thinking, Do you know what, I'd never thought about buying a few copies for an organisation, 
um, then if you are interested, then um, you can drop us an email through the website and um, we can always try and get a better deal for you if you're buying a few more in terms of that point. Right. I'm also on social media like yourself. So if you're on there, Twitter, for example, then I'm on there at Mark Finnis. Um, then I'd love to connect with you on there as well. Brilliant. Mark, listen, I want to just say thank you very much for taking the time out to, to, to talk with us on, on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And I know that I've definitely have admired some of your work from afar and it has been uh, extremely um, great <laughs> to be able to connect with you uh, in person to some degree here, obviously, albeit over a Zoom screen. And uh, But definitely, um, it's been great. Just the initial conversation that we had a number of weeks back, um, definitely when you talk about connection, you know, before content, I, I think it was, one, it was really useful that we did that. But two, I definitely feel that um, there's that connection there. I definitely feel that there's an alignment between what we're doing here and alternatives and then the approach that you're, you're taking. So I, I really want to say thank you for taking the time out to be with us and share with us. And uh, I'm really looking forward to, you know, releasing this episode of the podcast. Thank you to you as well. I, you know, I just echo that back to you. The first time we met, there was an obvious alignment to what we were both doing and what we, um, what we were interested in and our understanding of what we started to practice. So, likewise, big thank you to you, and I've loved chatting to you. It's been really, really great. Brilliant, man. Thanks very much. Well, there you go, folks. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did having it. Um, Mark was absolutely fantastic to talk to. Some great insights, and I definitely do recommend that you get a hold of his book, um, Restorative Practice, um, about building relationships, improving behavior, and creating stronger communities. Absolutely first-class book, and well worth your, your time and attention. So that's it for Restorative Justice Week's podcast from Northern Ireland Alternatives. Um, please check out the rest of our episodes on soundcloud.com forward slash talking piece. There's a lot of stuff there around restorative practice, restorative justice that you can get into and uh, glean um, some information and maybe wisdom from as well. So until the next episode, look after yourselves and take it easy. Mm-hmm.